Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi guys, you know the score. So this is Stop and Search on the Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Lit UK. And we're joined by Marcus Brigstock. So here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Where true love seldom As I say, Marcus Brigstock, comedian, actor, writer, TV personality, you name it, he's done it. He's, he's really open with us on this podcast. He talks about his um, addiction issues, both food um, and other substances. Um, we've never really delved into food addiction as a, as a topic, and it's something I'm personally really interested in. And I think as a society, we need to have more of a conversation around it because um, there's a lot of people that this affects. And Marcus, he's just so eloquent with it. And we, of course, have to discuss the media and politics and all the interactions that go on with that. So thanks, Marcus, for joining us. Uh, you're an absolute star. Quick um, mentions of social media, because I always do this at the end, but if you enjoy what we do, please do follow us on social media, at UK Leap on Twitter. Instagram, I think, is UK Leap as well. Uh, Facebook slash UKLeap.org. On the web, the boring old, plain old web. Um, do we even call it a web anymore? I don't know, the internet. So how old I am. So that is ukleap.org as well and if you fancy having a follow of me I, I say nothing sensible on social media half time but I'm at Jason Tron uh, yes Tron as in the film so let's get straight on with this this is Marcus Brigstock on Stop and Search thanks for joining us Marcus yeah this is going to be a different podcast we've not done a one on one before so we're, we're going to risk it and I, I spoke to Pip, Scroobius Pip, our, uh, our podcast boss, and he said, if you're going to do a one-on-one, Marcus is going to be the one to do it with, because Marcus can talk, in, uh, in Pip's words. <laughs> I don't know if it's a compliment or not, but, but um, Marcus did Pip's podcast uh, about, well, two, three, four months ago? Yeah. And I, and I listened to it, and it was like, oh, I've got I've to get in touch, because... He, uh, Marcus picked up on some stuff that I found genuinely interesting. So, um, lucky enough, I emailed and uh, got a very positive response. So, if you can give a massive round of applause and a huge thank you to Mr. Marcus Brickstock. Thanks, 
Evening. Hello. And he's carrying Neil's book, which... I am. <laughs> you shamelessly by this. Neil. Not mine. I've changed my mind about mine. I meant it when I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> it's around here somewhere, I think. Whoa. I'm pretty sure I have seen it. Are you on a rickety stall? Yeah. Do you want to swap? No, it's swap? exciting. It adds a dimension of tension to the proceedings, doesn't it? This is going to be a conversation. Something can happen at any moment. Yeah. And I, this, that's how it worked. I, I literally took a punt on you. I, I, I emailed your agent saying, please, can I have you on the podcast? And you got in contact directly and said, yeah, go for it. So I roll, man. Which is unheard of. <laughs> say yes really. to things. Exactly. No, genuinely, say yes to things. For the most part, you know, my the most interesting things I've ended up doing have been because I've sort of gone, well, yeah, let's see what that's like. I've never been downstairs at, at Waterstones. <laughs> see, that sounds almost euphemistic. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so and here we are. We're, we're that's, I'm trying to figure out what that's a euphemism for. I don't know. It's like 32 degrees heat out there. That's the best I've got. I'm not yeah. doing... I'm certainly not doing the comedy tonight. And um, I'm t- uh, all I've got is filth in my head. No, okay, <laughs> I'm not doing it. What we have to do is the badge test. Because I don't know anything about your persuasion on the war on drugs or anything like that. Um, we've literally come into this blind, aren't we? Yeah. We- we've not had a prior conversation. Nope. Um, so, this is the coveted leap badge. Uh-huh. You wear this if you support and end to the war on drugs. I'm going to put it there, and if you pick it up, that means that you are, uh, I don't know, tacitly... First one's free, right? And then after that, I know where to come. Exactly. <laughs> if I want more. <laughs> You've been here before, haven't you? He's going we'll for it. will happily pick up the, the badge up. and say uh, uh, very clearly, straight on, that I think that there should be an end to what is described as the war on drugs because it's not winnable by either side. Round of applause for that. So uh, it's... um, It just isn't... It's not winnable, because it's based on... It's based on some fundamental misunderstandings. Oh, I've jumped straight in here, haven't I? With no no context. I should say to the audience, so um, I don't know if any of you know, but uh, I'm... So I'm a recovering addict... Uh, recovering from multiple addictions, including uh, drugs and alcohol, although why we draw a distinction between those two, I have absolutely no idea. Uh, Why on earth would alcohol be legal and drugs not when they serve the same function? Um, But the the, the primary thing uh, that I was addicted to first was food. Uh, I developed a, a compulsive eating disorder by the age of seven, which was wildly out of control by the age of eight or nine and by the time I was 10 my school uniform had to be made believe it or not by a tailor because I was so chronically overweight I couldn't fit into any of the uniforms and then as soon as I found other ways of getting out of my head um, which is uh, people say oh out of my head but that is exactly what I was doing seeking a way of getting out of my head. I did not want to be in my head. It was a painful and uncomfortable place and addiction made my head much more painful and uncomfortable. And so the need to get out of my head was stronger and stronger. The experience was exacerbated by the experience of being an addict. That's uh, what happened. So I started, uh, I started, what did I do first? I think solvents first, probably about the age of 
12. Just interested a bit in what happened when I sniffed solvents. And then by the age of 13, 14, uh, I understood how you could abuse solvents so that you really couldn't feel anything at all and would black out and stuff like that, which is unbelievably dangerous. Um, and uh, I didn't, the truth is, I, I got sober when I was 17. I have never had a legal drink in my life. Uh, and uh, I've so I've not really taken that many drugs, but it was very obvious when I went into rehab to get help with my eating disorder that most 17-year-olds didn't drink like I drank. Uh, it turns out port is not a breakfast wine. Rosé is a breakfast wine, port isn't. And, uh, and also that, that my relationship with, um, uh, with solvents and with spliff was, was not okay. You know, it was it was serving an addictive function in, in my life. So, um, so I've, been, I've been sober from, from addiction uh, for 27 years, but addiction's an interesting an interesting experience for me it's not the same for a lot of people but for me the sort of inner addict which may or may not have existed before i developed an eating disorder before i found drugs before i found alcohol is constantly searching for new and interesting ways to alter my uh experience because my resting experience if i don't concentrate on it and take certain steps and do certain actions my resting experience is a is a painful one um i, I say that w without any self-pity at all it is just as that's a phenomenon of addicts it's it's described as uh, restlessness irritability and discontentment uh and i i definitely have that unless i do certain things to to help prevent that but that has meant that i've uh, you know i've i've been away from taking drugs but occupying that space i mean i don't know if you know but some comedians do take drugs really uh, yeah uh, as no it's true it's true <laughs> some of them do and i also know a lot of musicians and other artists and i'm afraid to say some musicians also take drugs yeah i'm sorry i don't want to not politicians. Uh, uh, or, uh, I think every politician I know takes drugs, uh, one form or another. Mostly alcohol, I think. But. So you, you went through this at a really early age then? I did, yeah. It was peculiar. And I, I kind of... I was appalled by the idea when I went in, because I went into a residential rehab centre at 17 and I thought I, I was being sent to yet another place to deal with the fact that my tummy was too big. I was like, oh yeah, this will be some diet thing. And very quickly I got help and I, I was sharing a, a room with uh, two intravenous heroin addicts and I, I was like, well, this is ridiculous. What a ridiculous situation for me. I sniff glue and tipex and i smoke a lot of spliff and i take whatever lsd i can find don't put me in a room with proper junkies mostly i just have too much to eat it's identical it's exactly the same experience it's the same thing and the reasons behind it are the same like i should say really clearly right chemical addiction as you know, the understanding that a lot of people have about addiction is that if you take intravenous heroin, you will get addicted to heroin. I would say if you take 
heroin intravenously, you are addicted to it long before you touch the stuff because it takes a certain kind of person to do that. Now, that may be nurture, it may be nature, it may be environmental. Certainly, um, we can go into this in greater detail, but it's, it's very, very clear that uh, methadone or methadrine, I can't remember which one they're using now, is a good deal cheaper than prison guards. So I'm not suggesting that every single person who leaves prison with a, with a dependence on, on opiates was a junkie before they got there. You, you see what I mean? Like you can create the addict, definitely, but I think that's more than just the chemical, it's, it's the environment as well. It's, see, I really do talk. This totally fits in the narrative of what we, okay, what cool. we go into. Um, Johan Hari, who was here last month, uh, completely, he would agree with you that it isn't a chemical hook. It's about the person and, and the environment you're yeah. in. Um, so was, was there anything within your environment? I mean, I, I don't want to be a psych here. I don't want to be kind of laying down on a chaise lounge. Well, like I what went wrong? Yeah, I mean, what was, what was in your Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, sort of. I mean, I'm posh, so I went to boarding school when I was seven. That might be part of it. So almost like an isolation. Yeah, maybe. But you know what? My brother did too, and he's fine. So, you know, it's kind of a nonsense to say that that, 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 that caused it. In my experience, it exacerbated the, the, the problems that I had, you know. Um, and from, from a personality point of view, I've only ever seen you on the telly. Yeah. Uh, and it, it seems like that you are quite vibrant. You are quite always thinking. You know, you're... Yeah unbelievably quick I was, I was talking to John over here who's part of the Distraction Pieces Network and, and I was saying that um, the programme Argumental one of my favourite ah, programmes yes. I just I missed I, that show I can't believe how you do that of just that that quick firing that quick wit and you and Rufus and that'll make kids. you high <laughs> no really, really? I mean, that makes you high so do you get the same sort of euphoric response off of performance yeah it's massive want? it is massive it's huge. Uh, you know, uh, this is not to suggest that every comedian or every performer is, is an addict. I don't think that that's the case. But there's no doubt, you know, being a comedian, you're exposing yourself to a different sort of analysis in your work, right? So I, I act as well and I write and blah, 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 blah. With comedy, you're doing your job or you're not. Right? If they don't laugh, you didn't do your job. I'm not playing this for laughs, by the way. <laughs> we can dial that up if people are bored. But, you know, uh, but it's really win or lose. It's high stakes. And there's a reason why comedians say, I died on my ass. I died. Or, you know, I tore the roof off it. It's all exaggeration, you know. But the experience is very, very extreme. And there are massive surges of something very interesting that happens to me when I'm on stage, including my brain works much quicker, much, much quicker. I say, uh, I've talked to other clowns about this, it's, it fascinates me, I say whole jokes when I'm on stage that I haven't written, that I haven't thought of, and that I couldn't do if I was anywhere but on that stage. And you, I, I laugh at them as well, which is kind of embarrassing, comedian laughing at their own jokes, but it's because I had no idea it was there. I, it just went, but, and there it is. Frank Skinner's astonishing frank can seemingly do that like a lizard without any outward display of excitement most comedians will build a bit of momentum get a heckle come back and then there's some improv and you can see it happening but frank just stands very still he thinks in whole jokes it's 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 astonishing but there is a big buzz in in that experience and yeah i'm i really miss argumental it was a show where rufus hound and i were team captains and we um 
we were given a subject at very short notice. We might have to argue, you argue wasps are better than bees and I'll argue bees are better than wasps. And we took it pretty seriously. <laughs> to, to such an extent that Rufus got naked. One Rufus time. did get naked. He had to argue there's nothing, there's nothing weird about naturism. And uh, it was so good. And I said to I said to some of the guys before, I said, you, you know he's going to lose this unless he undresses, right? And they were all going, yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, he's clearly not going to undress. And while he delivered, firstly, a properly structured and hilarious argument, he took his tie off, his shirt, trousers, shoes, socks, and then, to my astonishment, grabbed his pants that were on a quick-release thing and pulled them off and delivered the rest of this speech stark bollock naked. And Andrew Maxwell was on his team... And Andrew had to sort of back up his argument. And there was a bit, it never made the edit, but it was a truly astonishing moment where Andrew Maxwell was using a biro to lift Rufus's penis. The t- a, a biro just to lift it up and down. And Andrew's from Dublin and he went, there's nothing weird about naturism. <laughs> I mean, this, this is a little bit weird. But there's nothing weird about naturism. And I was like, I'm so happy to lose this argument because that is joyfully hilarious. And, you know, so there is, I mean, there's a big buzz in it. But then there's also the really uh, yeah, healthy, unhealthy is a really unhelpful way of describing things. But there's a very healthy, I think, um, thing at play there for me where I'm channeling the bits of me that are restless, irritable, discontented, a busy brain that sometimes is uncomfortable to sit in and finding an outlet that people find entertaining and that I find very stimulating. So I don't, I don't worry that, that uh, being a stand-up is like a new manifestation of my addiction. It, we found, haven't we? Neil? Porn is. Yes, uh, we're, we're going to get on to porn um, because it's actually genuinely quite a fascinating subject, porn. And it's, no it's something that we've not done on this podcast before. I absolutely guarantee, I said this to you just before we went on, I guarantee looking out at this audience, I would guess at least four people sitting in this room whose relationship with pornography makes them uncomfortable. If you can put your hands up. <laughs> no, up in the air. Don't be disgusting. <laughs> There's really interesting facts about this. Fascinating. So cocaine will give you a 300% increase in dopamine release within your brain. 300% increase on average from cocaine use. Dopamine, it's the bit that makes you feel good. Online porn. Anybody care to hazard a guess as to what the dopamine increase is in your brain when you look at online porn as a percentage? Cocaine's 300% increase. 200%. No dealer, you're never going to die, you're never going to black out. It's limitless. 200% increase in dopamine, and it damages your dopamine uptake really, really badly. There is an epidemic of porn addiction uh, worldwide right now, and it's one of the massive unspoken things. And by addiction, I mean people becoming dependent on that amount of dopamine, damaging the dopamine uptake in their brain and finding the real world struggles to compete with their online experience and it's not confined just to pornography social media serves a very similar function with massive massive increases in dopamine release as you look at social media email and text messages 
the real you cannot walk fast enough down the road or run fast enough down the road to have as many dopamine triggering experiences as you do sitting and flipping through facebook or looking at porn or twitter or whatever else you cannot do it and my brain as an addict so I have to be aware of these sort of things. I'm not campaigning against porn, nor against drugs, nor against alcohol or anything else. My brain is an addict. I have to take responsibility for the way that I interact with those kinds of processes because I can get myself uh, in a terrible state. Uh, so for me, I've had, to, I've had to just go, porn is, I cannot look at any porn. It's too dangerous for me. Is that how you deal with things generally that are problematic? Is to go, right, I've got to shut the door on that. Yeah, I mean, that's tricky with an eating disorder, I tell you, because you have to carry on eating. Uh, so the way I do that is I eat three meals a day and I don't eat in between. Uh, because, you know, if you said to a recovering alcoholic, which I also am, um, could you have one beer at breakfast, one glass of wine in the middle of the day and a small cocktail in the evening and leave it at that? The answer would be no. They can't. That We can't. I can't. That's why I don't drink. But you can't stop eating, so I have to put in place parameters around eating that make it okay for me. And I manage with mixed success. You know, it's, it, that's a, uh, eating is the, diff, the most challenging addiction that I have out of all of them. With porn, it's, it, was, um, it was difficult, in a sense, to go, mm, I have to really admit, that this is not going to be okay for me and put an absolute red line in place where that's concerned. But it's not painful to me in any way. So I do, I do put a, a lid on things that I think are going to cause me significant harm uh, where I can. But, you know, a problem is only a problem when it's a problem. I know that seems <laughs> like a ridiculous thing to say, but there are all sorts of people with addictions at play in their lives for whom the addiction is is kind of manageable, you know, and it's okay. It's just about okay. For me, it just isn't, you know, like my addictions unchecked run riot. So I have, you know, like with with drugs to come back to to what we're really here talking about, I have all sorts of concerns about full legalisation. I don't believe that making it legal will make lots more people addicts. Addicts are going to find their way no matter what. Um, I feel so sorry for people that do have a food addiction because it isn't something you can escape from. You need to eat to survive. Yeah. And as you said, you've partitioned yourself into three meals a day. Um, is, that, is that still difficult to maintain? Do you yeah. still have to be conscious of it? Yeah, very. It, it's really difficult. It's three meals a day, not three banquets for a kickoff. And, and I'm like, you see, I can say that a buffet is a meal... Yo sushi is about as bad as it gets. That is food that actually travels towards you. <laughs> like, it's incredible. I could lie on the belt with my mouth open and just go, this is not my fault. It's, too, this is, it's literally intravenous, <laughs> intravenous food or in a way. So, uh, yeah, it, yeah, look, food addiction is really, really difficult. And for what it's worth... Most of the recovering drug addicts and alcoholics that I know, if they can remember, and some have damaged their capacity to remember, but if they can remember and you get them talking about it, most of them have had some issues with food before anything else. Yeah, and also, I mean, we know, don't we, Neil, that 
anybody that's in recovery, food can fill a gap. Oh, so, no kidding, man. Well, the AA big book recommends it. You know, actually, it's not in the big book, but in the in meetings, they'll say, yeah, look, if you're really gasping for a drink, get yourself a chocolate cake and go to bed. Not like, right. not for me, mister. Straight away, that, that, that insinuates that we don't take food addiction seriously. We're, we we're don't still... take food addiction seriously because the effects, whilst there, uh, there are more people who have health problems associated with eating disorders, whether that's addictive or not, but disordered eating, overeating, undereating, bulimia, orthorexia, which is, uh, is running riot at the moment. Orthorexia, if you don't know, is uh, uh, people whose entire fascination from the moment they wake up is what they're going to eat or usually not eat next. Uh, basically, if anyone has a Nutribullet, uh, you're on thin ice. <laughs> <That'd be laughs> That's me. not true. But there's, um, uh, yeah, look, food addiction is absolutely everywhere. It's everywhere. Food triggers dopamine. The, uh, the reason that cooking programs are as successful as they are is that every time we see food, see food being prepared, the bit of us that evolved in tribes that needed to gather food when we could, your brain goes, I might need that. There it is, a little bit of dopamine, a little bit of dopamine. Cooking shows are fantastic, as are displays of food, fresh fruit. And we're, we're talking right now opposite the cookery section, which Yeah, is there we go. Yeah, amazing. Just by Nikki, though, who's yum, yum, delicately yum, yum, displaying yum. it like a game show host. So, so yeah, food addiction is, is, uh, <laughs> is vast. Um, in my case, it really was. But the effects of it maybe day-to-day are less dramatic than a spiralling drug or alcohol addiction. Do you know what I mean? Like, I might have eaten all the food in your house by the time you woke up, or you might have found me eating from a bin, which I did, Um, you know, and you'd go, not okay, but that's not quite the same as taking enough drugs to hospitalise myself or you know, drinking and making really reckless decisions or becoming so uninhibited that violence seems, you know, like food addiction mostly won't take you there. Drugs and alcohol maybe do. So I think people do kind of overlook it there. And again, it's only a problem if it's a problem. For me, it was a terrible, terrible problem. And I would go to bed at night. You'll have heard this on the podcast with Pip, you know, the, the problem for addicts is not other people's hearts breaking and the promises they make to other people. It's the stuff, the promises you make to yourself of an evening and you lie down at the end of a day where maybe you've done some terrible things. You've stolen a load of stuff to support your addiction, maybe eaten from a bin, something like that. And you lie alone in bed at night and you say to yourself, okay, I'm glad that happened. That's it now. I'm done. Jeez, that that was a new low. But at least now I can draw a line under it and from tomorrow morning, that's it. I'm done with this fantastic all right and you go to sleep with that in your mind you get up the next morning and you are it's like that conversation never existed you can't hear it you can't remember it it just goes and you're back in the addiction and that breaking promises to yourself just crushes you as a human being like it really does there's nothing of you left when you break your own promises and it's the you know the same is true for drug addicts even one's a long way into their addiction 
they will know that, that they're hurting themselves and other people and, you know, and feel really bad about it. And then uh, ultimately, I, I think what happens, at least my experience, is one day you find there, there aren't enough drugs, there isn't enough alcohol, there isn't enough cake to stop you feeling like you'd rather be dead. You know, and presumably that self-loathing enforces the addictive patterns. It, it, it completely does. It completely does. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, I think I read a comment that you said that it wasn't so much specific foods; it was the quantity you just needed. Yeah, more that's right. More. It wasn't really. I mean, cakes a sort of go-to thing, but cake wasn't really it for me. You know, it was more savoury kind of stuff. But yeah, it was volume of food. What I was looking for was Christmas afternoon. So non-food addicts will know what I mean by Christmas afternoon. Like when you lie like a python wrapped around a quantity of food that you've consumed, unable to move, and your brain slows down and you are in an an opiate state there, effectively. That's what the food has done. So you've had the dopamine release in the consumption, preparation, and taking of the food, and then the quantity just slows your body down. And I was looking always for the opiate buzzes. I was always looking for that one that just made you not feel anything. Um, So, yeah, it was just, it was quantity for me. Did you have to then fill that void with something else? Did you think that you... Well, um, when I stopped. So when you when you all of a sudden do get off your addictive patterns, yeah. is there something else? Because I know you're heavily into snowboarding and yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. things like that. And also we said about stage work. Yeah. Do things like that fill the voids? Yeah, they do. They do. But, but you have to be a bit mindful about that because you can't snowboard all the time uh, and you can't be on stage all the time. And you, for me anyway, I have to, be okay and and what that looks like now is um is getting a fair bit of help you know i talk a lot with other addicts i have to concentrate on things like what's described as mindfulness the people in the east in the far east who've been doing this for so long go okay cool yeah you so you rebranded you rebranded five Six thousand years worth of what how we live into a thing you're calling mindfulness. Cool, nice. Is that selling some books? <laughs> That's super. That is super. You must be very pleased with your rebranding of functionally. Uh, you know, it's being present. It's being able to recognise that. You know. <sighs> See, I'm hesitating before saying these things, but that the restlessness, irritability, and discontent that I feel can be counteracted through things like meditation, being present, going to meetings, helping other addicts. That's a huge part of what I need to do in order to stay well. And and this is why we we pretty much do this podcast. Obviously, we're we're making a point to reform our drug laws, but we found that there are so many people that gravitate towards us that have had problems and people like you that yeah. are speaking out there honestly and openly because we're still not having those conversations. We still are quite shrouded. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, obviously at the core of at the core of this discussion where that's concerned, it doesn't help that you can't, that you can't discuss drug addiction without admitting that you've broken the law. So you're stuffed from the get-go. 
You can't go to whoever your support group is, you know, unless they're mates and maybe your mates, if you do have a problem with drug addiction, are not the right ones to help you. You can't reach out easily beyond that and say, look, this isn't working for me, by which I mean either the job you have, the lifestyle you live or your own value system is suddenly compromised by the fact that you're struggling and you can't you can't function without the things that you perceive that you need within your addiction, you know? So the fact that drugs are illegal makes that conversation much more difficult. It then functionally, literally isolates people by putting them in prison, which absolutely doesn't help with drug addiction. There was a there was a really fascinating moment for me as a, a as a recovering addict where David Cameron uh before he was prime minister, when he became leader of the Conservative Party, he said, uh, we are going to deal with addiction in prisons. And I went, wow, that's amazing. And he said it several times. I was like, fantastic, man. I hope somebody somewhere has done some costings because that is going to be really expensive really really expensive to help that many people will cost a lot of money there's a lot of free help but because of because of where the lifestyles have led people who've become criminalized by this process you're going to need to spend a lot now i would spend that money if it were down to me but i'm too cowardly to be an actual politician um we, so, can, we can get some comments from an actual politician uh, yeah, maybe, later, i think maybe but it's a really expensive thing to deal with. Really, really expensive. It, 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 it's not easy. But there was a shining moment there where I thought, wow, you know. And David Cameron knew, and he mentioned it at the time. He said, you know, we could massively reduce the prison population in this country. Thing is, there's no appetite for that. Yeah, well, David Cameron got it. We, you know, 2002, we were supporting the reform of our drug laws, and then yeah. all of a sudden you get into power. Uh, and you know that's what seems to happen as soon as the the power yeah. button strikes. There's yeah. all these other factors that come into play. Yeah, and what those factors are are, are you know we live in a democracy in which for some reason, and I, I genuinely am baffled by this, the print media still informs the central political narrative in this country. It's extraordinary. So the print media, which is dying around us. I mean, you know, they sell fewer and fewer copies of their newspapers. The owners of the top five selling newspapers are billionaires who don't live in this country, uh, by which I mean they live here, but their money doesn't. They have zero stake in this country, and their toxifying effect is everywhere. And you will see in broadcast media, pretty much everywhere you look, you will see or hear on the Today programme, on Question Time, on Newsnight, on Sky News, whatever it may be, they will lead with. According to a report in The Times, according to the editor of blah, 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 a columnist in The Times, let me put it to you, uh, Prime Minister, The Telegraph says X, Y and Z. For some reason, the newspapers are still held in this place and the newspapers are able to have this kind of toxifying numbing, baffling effect on the country, those newspapers make it impossible to legalise drugs in this country. Even what might be considered, uh, if not harmless, lower-risk drugs. They, at the moment, have a stranglehold on the UK. And I don't, I don't anticipate seeing any, any of what are currently illegal drugs legalised in my lifetime for that reason.
even the way that they still handle addiction as well because i mean this very weekend uh, a celebrity came out with someone that's needing to go to rehab yeah um and yet we're still the he had to display an element of contrition I've let people down. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, and and just the way that we handle that dialogue publicly yeah. just goes show that we've got so much more to talk about. If only there was some way of exposing journalists to to addiction. If only any of them had any direct experience somehow of having tried recreational drugs, for example. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary given the hours they keep, the company they keep, and the deadlines they have to meet that literally none of them have ever tried any amphetamines. <laughs> I don't know how we get across that bridge. But that's the thing, you know, there's this sort of stupid, toxic uh, atmosphere that exists around it. I mean, alcoholism on Fleet Street was rife. Absolutely rife. Anne Robinson uh, wrote quite a lot in her book about the, you know, what existed on Fleet Street back when she was a, a newspaper hack. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there's a really unhealthy relationship, certainly with alcohol. And actually, I don't know which journalists take drugs. I'm sort of assuming all of them. <laughs> and as you said, in in the entertainment fields, it's it's rife. There's no getting away from it. Do you think that? Yeah. Is is it? And I don't want to use the word needed because of you know that you are keeping longer hours, you are on stage and having to do a performance, whether you feel like it or not. So you can see how the the seeds are sown within someone's life of using drugs. It depends. It depends what you think. For the individual, it's catastrophic. I mean, look at Amy Winehouse. You know, it's catastrophic for her. Absolutely catastrophic. Uh, but could Amy Winehouse have made what she made without her addictions? Maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, maybe as consumers of art, uh, we have to be grateful for those who've always been willing historically to throw themselves all the way out there into the extremes of experience. I mean, look, I think ultimately that... Um, is this true? I'm just checking in my own head whether I actually believe this or not. Yeah. I think ultimately that if your relationship with drugs is what drives your creativity then there's something wrong. And I don't think that your creativity should ever be dependent on that process. That's not to say that along the way, experimenting with drugs, and I hate the word experimenting, but in this context, when I talk about creativity, that is exactly what I mean. Experimenting with drugs, then, yeah, great. You know, uh, certainly, you know, as a <laughs> you can't listen to the music that I listen to and not go, well... Drugs have certainly played a part here uh, and been very helpful and very interesting and opened some perceptions up and all the rest of it. And then taken away a bunch of the musicians who might have continued to make great stuff, you know. Bowie, so Bowie took lots and lots and lots of interesting chemicals in the 50s, 60s and 70s, as I understand. I imagine one or two in the 80s. I don't know if you've seen the video for uh, Dancing in the Street with Mick Jagger, <laughs> but something was going on, wasn't it? Uh, but Bowie, Bowie lived a, a, long, a long life and carried on being creative. Maybe he was still... I, look, I've no idea. He smoked a lot. Someone of my generation, you say Bowie and you think Labyrinth, the film. Yeah, that's, that's sure. Classic. That's fascinating, isn't it? Those grey those leggings... Oh, with gosh. a child standing yes. in front of him. Don't look at my balls, Sarah. 
while I euphemistically hold balls in my hands. That's the first Bowie impression we've there ever we had on this podcast. Yes. But it is, you can't get away from the fact that any, any entertainment realm is rife with drugs. And it's either, as we've just said, it can be used in the press as a leveraged position of, you know, essentially blackmailing people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all the while we've got that, do you think we can ever have a culture of openness where we can actually discuss, as you've just done, there's going to be no one in this room that doesn't disagree with your views on addiction because you've been through it, you've been very lucid in explaining it. Well, I can because I don't do it anymore. I couldn't do this if I still did. Is that, is that still part of the mindset? Well, I, I mean, okay, that's my, that's certainly my clear position on it. I don't, I don't think I could. Yeah, I don't think there's any way if I was still regularly using drugs because I'm an addict. So I wouldn't, I would be a very bad poster boy for legalized drugs so that people like me can get more of them without there being the kind of consequences that people who read the press in this country want for people like me do you think if you remove the stigma you can have more of an honest conversation because inherently you are boiling it down to almost a point of self-loathing in some sort of broad way but if you took that stigma out of it could you just be yeah although although it's not self-loathing per se that drives the next the next acting out with with addiction It, it it for most people, or certainly for me, I won't speak for most people because I simply do not know. But for me, it's you chemically alter your experience by compulsively overeating, taking drugs, watching porn for hours on end, drinking, whatever it may be. You chemically alter your experience. And when the, you, know, you, you alter it in a way that you perceive as being positive while you're doing it, the real world struggles to compete with that. So when you stop things become painful and some of that is as a result of there being negative consequences being very overweight running out of money or having relationships with people that you don't want to have if you're drug addicted uh having all sorts of irresponsible behavior associated with alcoholism or whatever it may be so there are there are challenges that you bump up against in your life within addiction but fundamentally it's just an internal thing it's yeah, I think it, it is just that internal thing. If you, you become so dependent on a, on a way of being on a daily basis that not having that becomes very, very frightening. When I first got sober, uh, you know, sort of turned 18, and I, got, I was in a halfway house in London, and they kept saying to me, you've got to take your headphones off when you go out. Just try once going out in the world without headphones on. And I went, well, okay then, because I was very willing to just, you know, try and get things right. You know, it really mattered to me. It still does, actually. I'm very compliant where stuff like that's concerned. And I went out and I tried to get on the tube and I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified by everything around me. And what the music was doing that I would listen to every time I left the house was just taking the edge off that experience. And the reason it was particularly terrifying for me is that my addiction kicked in when I was seven or eight. I was high all day long on compulsive overeating or everything that went with that. I'd never grown emotionally from that experience. I'd never been in the world as a functioning human being. So getting on and off the tube was horrendous. I was like, ah, this is so frightening. The music helped take the edge off it. So is it, is it escapism then? Yeah, yeah, but... but 
most things are, and I think escapism as a, as a term is perceived a, a bit negatively. Oh, you're just doing that to escape. We do most things to escape our day-to-day experience. Reading a book is escapism. Watching a film, taking drugs, having sex. Whatever it may be. I mean, escape, sort of, but... And even what you're doing with snowboarding. You know, yeah. It's probably a higher risk. I mean, we've got Professor Nutt here next month, and he'll probably be able to make a case better than mine. Well, I could, but snowboarding is probably a higher risk than some of the substances that you were using. And yet, yeah. we, as a society, turn that... Think that that's one's okay. okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Because yeah, you're out there doing right. something. It's healthy. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. And going back to what you said about porn, and this is something, it also leads into what you were saying about how you're worried about certain legalisation threads because yeah. of the attainable elements of what some people are addicted to. So porn is certainly ready, readily available now. I could get it in two seconds on my phone. Yeah. And has the rise... Don't, of, you'll trigger me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it even covers... I always say, delete my browser history, always. But there's, there's, a, there's a time when the attainable element of the addiction does weigh off in society of, you know, is it time that we looked at legalisation, but will it make more addicts because it's there on the shelf? What is your position on that? You said you've got concerns about how legalisation could... Well, yeah, I do have some concerns. Um, but it's hard to put my finger on exactly what those are. So in the States right now, there's an epidemic of heroin addiction, which has come about, as I understand it, from people being given prescription opioids, opiates, one or other, both perhaps, I don't know, uh, and then finding that their insurance or prescription or whatever runs out and they've got themselves a nice little dependency on, um, on, he- on effectively on heroin, which they then get from other sources, initially online in the form of tablets that turn out not to do very much. And then someone goes, I can get you some of those. And what they have there right now is a situation where there's a lot of nice people who have houses and stuff like that with a heroin addiction. And uh, when nice people have addictions, people get terribly upset and worried about it. When nasty people, by which they mean poor folks, have addictions, that's sort of what poor folks do, isn't it? And they'll keep that within their poor places where they are. And there'll be drug dealers on the stairs because that's what poor people like, isn't it? I mean, really, that's all, you know, that's all incredibly dangerous, very, very nasty stuff. And you'll see, you know, you'll see people all over the place abusing all manner of ways of altering altering their experience, or not abusing, using ways of altering their experience, and some are acceptable and some are not, and that's it, you know. And it's cheaper in a lot of places to get drugs or sniff glue or find some other way of getting out of your head. Uh, than it is to get hold of the things that the nice people are using. I don't know if I've been very clear on no, that, that point. That's I exactly may not have right. Done. That's, I mean, Neil's books there, as, as, as you know, within the work within Leap, that is exactly right. It's okay. only when the middle classes start to be affected and impacted that, yeah, that, sure. that we seem to make any kind of... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, that, that is the case. There's no doubt at all in my mind that drugs being criminalised exposes those who wish to use them and then those that are compelled to use them to a world of stuff that doesn't help anybody at all. It just doesn't help anybody. It just makes everything worse. It takes up goodness knows how much time for the police and the criminal justice process huge amounts of money being spent on what on what i don't i don't understand that and then you expose people to prison or you know a criminal record which makes the rest of their life much more difficult and makes the appeal of altering their experience through addiction in whatever form that comes or or maybe not even addiction just altering their experience becomes that much more appealing because their baseline existence is shit and painful. Um, so it doesn't help, does it? We're going to take some questions in about 10, 20 minutes. Uh, so make sure you get queued up and um, don't let me down because there's, there's been one time that I've, I've opened up to the crowd. So I'm looking at you, Tristan, and you, Ronnie, uh. to get things going. And also I want to have a word with Neil as well in a minute because it... it, it it really is a conversation that we need to have that people got genuine concerns that if we did reform our drug laws, what would happen? And I think sometimes people don't necessarily understand the differences. So where would you put yourself on the spectrum? Would you, if you, do you know the terms of decriminalisation, legalisation? Yeah. Would you, yeah, would yeah. you say that you waver more to, you know, getting a decriminalisation in place that you know, removes the stigma or would you be more inclined to reform and regulate drugs? I think I'd be inclined to reform and regulate them. Um, I'd be inclined to tax them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I would. Screw it. I don't drink, but I'm glad that drinks as popular as it is. It seems to generate a huge amount of uh, revenue that can be spent on things that I do use. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Smokers, uh, thank you so much. You are paying so much to keep lights on and... 
ironically pay for hospitals to stay open. I really do appreciate. What, is it a tenner a packet now? Oh, goodness, no. you could still get uh, you could still get twenty fags for two pounds ten when I stop smoking. Ha ha ha. <laughs> Uh, yes, I would. I would reform and uh, and seek to just legalize the whole damn thing, and then and then you know just try and help people not to make those sh- shitty choices. I would look much more. Uh, I would look much more at making. Do I mean this? See, sometimes I launch into a sentence and then realize I've become overexcited. <laughs> They're normally yeah. the best sentences. Yeah, sure. Uh, I would, if I were in government or knew what to do about it, I would be looking very carefully at how porn is available in its current form. Uh, if nothing else, just making people really aware of what both porn and social media does, like what chemicals it moves within our brains. And getting people discussing that, and I, I, you know, I don't really blame government where this is concerned because I have two kids and I don't know how to help them. I sat down with my son and I said, "Listen, man, when I was your age, you'd go out, you'd buy a magazine by going to an all-night garage and pretending you were there for dog food and cotton buds, and go. Well, I suppose I'll have some porn. Shall I? Yeah, I mean, it's not why I came here. I, uh, I came clearly for the dog I don't have, but." <laughs> I'll have that magazine. Thank you very much. And then there'd be naked women in it. And if you kept turning the pages, the middle page, she'd be lying on her back with her legs open. Then you carry on turning the pages and nothing else happened. Now, my son is one click away from seeing stuff at any given time, seeing stuff that is pretty hard to explain. Uh, has nothing to do with sex. Uh has certainly very little to do with how we treat each other in the rest of the world. It's kind of, it's just weird and needs to be part of a bigger conversation. Um, but yeah, I would start by decriminalizing drugs, I suppose, and then move to regulate. But God knows how you begin to do that. Well, interestingly, you, you've really hit upon something there of child access. One of, the, one of the reasons that we do want to reform and regulate drugs is to stop children from having the ready access yeah. that they've already got. And porn's a good example of that. As you said, there's just not. I haven't got children and I would not know how to stop them yeah. from being one click away. And, and, and as you said, in, in our day, because sure. God, I feel old now, but <laughs> you, know, you used to, it, there was the famous bush porn. You, you saw it in the hedge. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, bush that, porn. That was the stuff of legend. Tree porn, shed porn. Exactly. Station porn. And you just don't get that now. I'm, yeah. I'm almost nostalgic. Where, where's it all yeah. gone? But Somewhere, somewhere there's a warehouse full of, of bush porn and white dog poo. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an album as well. Yeah. Bush porn and white dog poo, yeah. <laughs> but, but you don't, the, the child access is so ready and it yeah. is with drugs as well and that's one of the areas we've got right of regulation on cigarettes and alcohol is that children have got some degree of buffer from before yeah. they get to that. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I'm going to head over to you now, Neil. This is a good place to do it. But, um, excuse me, Ronnie. And how would you answer the concerns of someone like Marcus that goes, well, I do agree with the reform and regulation of drugs, but I've still got concerns. Yeah, access is an interesting one, isn't it? I, I remember doing a, an undercover job in, in Leicester, and this dealer I'd just met gave me a lighter, and it was his phone number, 
And so we had these little like marketing things. It was his phone number and 24-7 underneath. So, you know, he was letting me know and he was part of my community uh, that, I was, that I was stopping in. And he, he was just letting me know and the handy number and a lighter. So, you know, it could be my next door neighbour in a community. You deal as the person next door. So actually by regulating, you reduce the outlets, you reduce it and you control it. And, you know, you have regulated times and things like that. So, you know, I, I think the lighters and the business cards are what people should see, the reality of what actually goes on on the streets, I think, if they're concerned. Mm. I think it's what you like for me as a dad... One of the big concerns I have is that for my kids, because drugs are illegal, there's no stake for a dealer to behave with any ethical principles at all. You know, if, if a dealer has £100 worth of a white powder that may or may not get you high, there is no one, there's no recourse, there's nowhere for him to go, there's no one regulating that. Why would he not seek to make 200 quid out of that by mixing it with whatever i mean it was after i stopped uh, using any drugs at all that the term a pill became a normal thing i went out i took a pill what pill what's a pill that's a, a pill is a a shape it's not a, a pill is anything what pill did you take i don't know a pill it was a festival i took a pill what was in the pill? I don't know, the things. I can't tell you. I, I felt like this. <laughs> and my friend was taken to hospital, <laughs> or whatever it may be. Uh, hi, I'm Brian Harvey. Um, you know, that, that terrifies me as a, as a parent. I don't see myself relapsing and taking drugs, but as a parent, I look and I think, Christ, you know, my kids are not... There's no way they can be safe. Absolutely no way they can be safe or know what they're taking. Because this, because it's illegal. What kind of conversation do you have with your kids on drugs? Well, I don't think they should take drugs at the moment because they're too young. <laughs> I tell you exactly the conversation I've had with my son. It hasn't yet come up with my daughter. I've said to my son, uh, I'm pausing again before I finish this sentence. <laughs> I've said to my son, when, not now, when you're a bit older, if you want to smoke, spliff or whatever they call it now, the wacky-backy, uh, I would far sooner you did it here at my home than, you know, not every time, but, you know, I, I would want him to be clued up and um, know what he's smoking. I mean, I, look, I, I can't help him very much. You know, like, I smoked hash. That was the thing. It was a great dirty lump of stuff and... Uh, you could smoke a lot of it and get very high, and now weed is just of a different order entirely, and it would scare me. I, I did meet someone who was in what they call a dope psychosis. If you want to encourage people not to smoke um, weed, get them to go and see someone who's in a dope psychosis, which is the best way of describing it is you get high, and then you don't ever stop being high. That bit of your brain just goes, oh, hey, in the first... 10 hours you're like that was a good value spliff wow that was amazing after 24 hours you're like mm, i'm ready for this to stop now and after 48 hours your life is absolutely terrifying so you know these things they change your brain it scares me a bit i talked to my son about not knowing what's in stuff mm. 
that's that's a lot of it is is knowing what you're getting because there's going to be a lot of cannabis consumers that are going to be listening to this as it goes out that are going to be screaming at the podcast about how potency isn't necessarily a reflection of what's out there on the street mm. in this regulated system what you've got out there which is essentially whatever you can get at any given yes. time on a street corner yeah there is no quality control it's, exactly yeah 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 and there's no way of knowing until you start until you lab rat yourself and go sure let's see what this is like what so. you need is a gang of mates one of whom is a bit bulletproof and a bit stupid. <laughs> and you get that person to try everything first and everyone else gathers around and watches them in a controlled environment for a couple of hours. You go, well, thick Danny seems to be all right. We're going in, guys. Um, this is a regulation model that we've never looked at. Well, <laughs> you know, there, there, need, there need to be some people willing to be what I'm going to call pioneers so they feel good <laughs> about what they are, actually are. <laughs> I just don't want my son to be that pioneer, nor my daughter, you know. Interestingly, I mean, you, you bring up about hash, and historically hash has been terrible purity in this country. Yeah, sure. So yeah. what you were doing back then could have been boot polish, could have been this, that, and the other. Yeah. But because there was an element of getting high, but not necessarily with the correct amount of THC and CBD, mm. then that is why potentially and perversely you weren't necessarily as harmed as much as someone that was doing a you know a 27% THC spliff that was yeah, yeah. smoking all in one and yeah. I think that's where the broader conversation needs to come into it that we're not having yet remotely in this country because mm. I think we're certainly geared up to have more of a conversation on addiction and heroin and things like that yeah whereas the states are more inclined to talk about cannabis they they don't really if you talk to anybody in North America they don't really know what cannabis psychosis is it's still very quite new to them and it's yeah they almost think of it oh that silly old country over there with the daily mail that's projecting this but of course yeah, yeah we we totally have to give respect to people that have been through that because we, we we know people that have been through that process yeah yeah but it's the the quality of control that goes with this conversation as well and just as the same as if you was at this lovely bar here um, you wouldn't necessarily go for their moonshine hooch that's in the corner. You'd probably go for one of those pumps over there that's doing something that's craft beer. Like mm. Tristan had a problem earlier because you didn't have the right beer, did you? But you didn't want to do the moonshine. Yeah. <laughs> and that, now, have they? Tell me this: in Portugal, have they legalized or decriminalized? That's decriminalized. Decriminalized everything. Yeah. What's it done? Neil, do you want to field that one? Yeah. yeah? How are they doing, the Portuguese? Well, I don't go there because of the food. Well, it's 17 years since they decriminalised and yeah. they had higher drug deaths than we, do in the, we did in the UK. Before decriminalisation, Before, before decriminalising, yeah. yeah. They, and um, there's some statistic they had, one in 100 people were using heroin. So it's a massive, massive heroin use. Now we have 48 deaths per million population and they have three deaths per million population. So that's over 17 years. So that's quite an improvement. They, yeah. also, they also have lower HIV rates, one of the lowest in Europe. Um, they have better health outcomes. And drug usage as, as a percentage of population stayed about the same. Has it? Mm. That, that was really, that's the, the point that I'm most interested in. I mean, obviously, I, it's not that I'm in any way blasé about number of deaths per hundred or million or, or whatever, or about 
you know the issues connected with like HIV and stuff like that but fundamentally I'm I suppose I'm most interested in how many people are regularly using drugs and finding that they're okay and it, the numbers have stayed about the same yeah they, I think they went up for three years and then they fell and they're back to where, where they were uh, to start with okay but I think even if they'd gone up you could see that as a as a good trade-off for reducing deaths and reducing harm. Sure, because, of course. Because, you know, there's so much focus from policymakers uh, on just numbers. And, and really, that's, that's a... What, do you know what it's done to their prison population? Yeah, it's massively reduced it. It's, um, their prison population is a small fraction of ours. Yeah. Because, like, like most Western countries, over half of the people in their prison were for drugs offences, which is the same as we have now. We're, we're about half, are we? Half, about, about half, half people yeah. in drugs offences or, or, you know, related to... Oh, it's probably a little bit more than half if you include all of the people who are there for drug-related crime. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, yeah. It's not safe to guess, but, you know, an awful lot of people who end up in prison because they stole something. You don't have to go very far into the rest of their life to answer questions about why. And sometimes uh, how they found the courage to begin to do that in the first place. I use the word courage advisedly, but, you know. Ronnie was um, fishing out a report as as we were going on that. What report is that, Ronnie? That's no good, mate. It's in Portuguese. What are you doing? I, I, I just happen to be doing uh, some research and I've got the Royal Society for Public Health. Uh, they're talking about taking a new line on drugs and there's a page or two in here about the experiences of Portugal, which has always been lauded as one of the great success stories. Uh, and it gives you all the facts and figures. Problem drugs has declined in 15 to 24 year olds. Deaths due to drugs have dropped down. Hepatitis C and B have both dropped away. Uh, but there's a beautiful quote in it. The woman says, when Portugal adopted a health-led approach to drugs in 2001, it did so because it wanted a humane, mature, evidence-based strategy to reduce drug harm. And I think that's just fabulous. We have made it very clear in this country we do not want an evidence-based approach. David Nutt, the moment he produced some evidence, had his job taken away from him. The follow-up quote is, in the UK, <laughs> the government's most recent legislation, the Psychoactive, uh, Psychoactive Substance Act, appears to be unworkable and couldn't be more in contrast to these ambitions. I wholeheartedly endorse that sentiment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is weird, isn't it, how something that so clearly, so clearly is not working. It isn't working on any level, and it's so expensive for taxpayers to have that many people in prison. It's so expensive. It's so odd that it's not somehow easier to make the case to change this. Why do you think that is? That's always a question I like to ask on this. Why are we so stunted within this conversation? Well, maybe it's just too lazy to say because the press, nah. But you know what I mean by that? I mean, the press just sort of are not ready. They're not ready to embrace much of what's new. They struggle with change, the press particularly, I think. I'm just trying to think of good examples of that. Um, Climate change might be a good one. Yes. You know, they struggle with they struggle with what's new. They struggle with requirements to change. So there's really, really, really strong evidence that we are altering the temperature of the planet and that it's necessary to make some pretty urgent changes, most of which would improve the quality of life. Uh, uh, would improve, improve the quality of life of people living in this country, lower our dependence on 
foreign oil and all of those things. And yet, press are just, it's too difficult for them somehow. I mean, look, the newspaper that was most ready to both report accurately on politics, by which I mean explain it and let it be boring, and embrace that which is new and different, is the first paper to have gone bust, The Independent. It's the first one to go. They wrote about politics very often, as politics was, i.e. it takes about 10 pages to explain these ideas. And I, I, think, I think where this is concerned, there is no one, uh, I say no one, there aren't the relevant people, the editors and the owners of our newspapers who'd be willing to go as a campaign now, just like we did with uh, 5P shopping bags or whatever it may be, we're going to stick our necks out and go, illegal drugs and the war on drugs as it stands is not working. This newspaper is saying legalised drugs. Get tomorrow's supplement with a free packet of Rizla. <laughs> Your pull-out guide to the THC... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, part, a part build set. You say yeah. that, but there was actually a campaign that did scratch and sniff cards to spot the smell of, of cannabis growing. I can't remember who it was now, but it actually did happen. In a newspaper? Yes, it did. Yeah, but that's helping people find the, find the, the crooked gardeners, as we like to call them. <laughs> crooked gardeners. <laughs> or, or alternatively, you're the child that gets there first and you think you're getting high off that scratch and sniff because there's always those rumours. We had uh, Mark yeah. Grist up here a little while ago and Nutmeg was his first drug of choice. Nutmeg. Nutmeg. Yes, exactly. And I think some of the myths are banana skins. That can be one I of them. I smoke banana skins. You've actually done that? Yeah. Did it yeah. work? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. There was, a, there was a thing that grew by the roadside that we called Old Man's Beard. I know the one. Yeah, yes. did, did you smoke that? No, but it's quite close to sticky weed, which is the stuff you used to chuck on cardigans. Yeah, it grows in the same place. And I smoked a lot of that. I think just on a basic level, the amount of actual physical smoke entering my lungs and exiting my lungs in place of oxygen meant that I felt something, but I don't know whether there was any chemical <laughs> alteration from that experience. See, inherently, we've got something in us that wants to go for the, the yeah, whether it's peer pressure or genuine no it's or... not peer pressure it's i think it's much more innate than that i think it's i think human beings are curious about experience all the while there is these 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 constructs around them that we think that we are fighting a good fight drugs are these evil you know on the on the horizon marauding like vikings do you think that we get whipped up in that state of mind especially through the tabloid media that we're yeah actually... yeah of course we do because a uh, a drug death uh of say a minor or a celebrity or something like that is a good story mm. it's a cracking good story that's always going to make the papers 14 year old girl takes X, Y, or Z and is hospitalised. Here are the pictures of her with froth coming out of her nose or whatever it may be. Uh, Amy Winehouse is not just dead. I mean, that was a good story when they knew she was going to die. They just left the cameras running. They left every channel open. Let's gather round and watch someone clearly struggling terribly with addiction. Mm. Let's wait until they die and then... She died. So it makes good copy. What you don't have is 
a whole bunch of interviews of people coming away. I mean, as we record this now, next weekend will be Glastonbury. And I would guess, having been there, probably half, maybe two-thirds of the people there will take some illegal drugs while they're at their festival and have either a very or a broadly positive experience or one with little impact. Uh, certainly one that makes Ed Sheeran's set on the Sunday night something that they can get excited about. <laughs> by which I mean people will be tired by the Sunday. I have nothing whatsoever to say about Ed Sheeran's music, having never heard one of it. See? Do you think I can get Ed Sheeran on here? Is that doable? Yeah, he's a smart guy. I've heard him interviewed. Smart guy and a nice bloke. I bet he'd have loads to say. I would. I'm not sure I if you would. No, I'm being. No, I'm absolutely. I'm absolutely serious. I'm serious. He'd. He'd probably have much more up-to-date drug experience than I've got. Yes, true. Yeah, everybody has. <laughs> right, have we got questions? Got, don't let me get down, guys. One of you do it, come on, Tristan. You kick it off down there. Gone. Okay, so my questions for Marcus. Um, you you've spoken a lot tonight about your addictions and the troubles they've caused you. Uh, when you did find help and you did start getting back into recovery, when you fell off the wagon and you had a shit day that you either ate loads or you went drunk, how do you come back for that? And how do you just not beat yourself up more and say, oh, well, I did it yesterday, I'm going to do it again today. And then, yeah. yeah, how do you break out of that cycle? Okay, well, I haven't, I haven't relapsed since day one on drugs and alcohol, December the 5th, 1990. So I've never had a relapse where that's concerned. With food, uh, I've never had a, what I'd call a full-on relapse, where that's concerned. I've never just gone, ah, what the hell, right? Uh, but I have had, you know, longer periods in my life where I would look and go, nah, my eating's pretty messy and I, I'm doing quite a lot of, like, breaking my own boundaries and eating on feelings of loneliness or entitlement or self-pity or excitement or whatever and so that's more of a kind of adjustment to bring those things back into line with something that works for me it's not this is nothing to do with it like an external win-lose thing or a failure or success it's purely like does it work for me and as someone who struggles with addiction the draw to it is to get out of my head. And there comes a point where I have to return to my head. And if I'm out of it for too long, uh, it gets really messy in there. So I can't do it. So then I just have to sort of, I just have to kind of bring the lines in a bit and, and be much more present for what I'm doing uh, with my food. And as I said, you know, um, with with porn i just i had to make a decision that as an addict and a man like it's aimed at me uh that that wasn't going to work for me so that you know it wasn't like a relapse or anything but then i did recognize like there's just no way i can have a an okay relationship with that so i needed to to stop but i'm i'm very grateful to say grateful more than any other emotion that i haven't totally come off the rails i've had some serious problems and i've struggled 
and I was making some pretty bad choices, not looking after myself, doing sometimes nine days in a row of doing two hours on stage, hundreds of people hanging on my every word, followed by 22 hours of total isolation, driving from one venue to the next. I don't have a tour manager and I don't take a support act. I just go two hours. Yay! Oh, you're brilliant. We love you. Fantastic. 22 hours, total isolation, where the only thing I say to people I don't know is, yes, table for one, thank you. Or no, I wouldn't like a free copy of the mail with breakfast. Or with anything. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I kind of got in a mess and I've had to, I've had to spend a lot of this year really being very present, very conscious about how how I find my, mm, not happy, but how I find a present contented state to be in, which and by contented I mean content with feeling sad, content with feeling angry as well as content with feeling happy, grateful and all the rest of it because, you know, all of the emotions. I don't know if you've seen Inside Out but it's basically the best film anyone's ever made ever. <laughs> Is that a lot of it? You have to be quite vigilant over your own behavioural patterns. Yeah. Addicts are pricks. We're selfish. Fundamentally, that irritability, restlessness and discontent that exists within addicts makes us behave in unbelievably selfish ways. Unbelievably selfish, including ultimately self-destruction. You know, an alcoholic or a drug addict will make a whole bunch of decisions that they are not comfortable with. If you actually talk to them about their value systems, very, very few of them, none I would suggest, but maybe one in a million or something, would go, yeah, screw it, I don't care who I hurt or whatever. Most care a huge amount, but they do it anyway. Mm. So addiction will make you very selfish. So that's why, you know, I have to do that. And I, you know, I'm very, uh, I don't want to call my children my responsibilities because that suggests they sort of occurred and now I have to deal with them. I, I love my children and I want to be present for them. I don't want to be out of my head. It is absolutely my opinion and experience that nobody can help an addict more than a, another addict who's in recovery. Nobody. There's a lot of great help out there, fantastic, really good therapists, counsellors and all the rest of it who really know what they're doing and can deal with some of the root problems that lead towards addiction. But fundamentally, if you want to get sober, you're best to turn to other people who've got sober. And doctors will... Doctors who've seen it will tell you the same thing. You know, I mean, yeah, it works. Any other questions? Go on. Well done. What's your name, by the way? Lucy. Lucy. Um, yes, yeah, I guess it's to all of you, really. I'm not sure quite how to word it, but um, when I think about legalising or decriminalising uh, drugs, I guess my worry is we live in very much of a sort of blame culture, especially with, like, the media and things. So how do you sort of see when something does go wrong, so someone does die from an overdose or something like that, um, how do you sort of see that kind of being played out? Shall I field this one? Or? Yeah, you should, I think, yeah. I think the first thing that we have to say is that if you look at... Canada, for example, there's a, there's a place there called Insight, which is a safe consumption room. Uh, no one has ever fatally overdosed. So 
as much as we've got, how many, I think we're up to nearly 3,000 deaths per year from opiates in this country, I think it is. No one has died in this facility. So overdoses tend to drop right off under some kind of regulatory system. And then if you step up uh, into psychedelics and as we've talked about festival consumption, there's places now called The Loop, which you can go there and you can test your drugs. So you crush them up, someone... Uh, normally Henry is is around here. Who's one of the one of the um, chief testers of, of these drugs? You can see when you look at his eyes; it's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, bless him. He, um, He's what we call a pioneer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> psychedelic pioneer. He'll totally go for that as a Twitter bio, wouldn't he? But they will. They'll test your drugs and they would check the purity and they'll give you recommended titration advice, which be you know crush, dab, wait. So basically, find out what this is going to be doing on you. And again, under the loop's watch, there's been no harm. Um, so it's the regulatory systems don't necessarily push prevalence up in use, but they can actually put in these safety nets, which means that people aren't necessarily harming themselves in the way that they do under the current prohibited systems. Um, and I think, is that cover it or do we need more on... Uh, Neil's got a point. Yeah, there's about 8,500 people die from acute alcohol poisoning every year in the UK. Um, it's far, far worse drug problem in terms of acute. That's not the long-term effects. That's just the overdoses. That's just drinking too much. Um, and no one sues Smirnoff or, or any of them. So, so but... Um, but they, they, I mean, we didn't have alcohol prohibition in this country, did we? Only in America. I mean... Just on that, you know, in the States, it's been a long time since Prohibition. So those who reintroduced legal alcohol consumption would not be held to account for alcohol-related deaths as being the politician who made it happen. And I can understand uh, a sense of, frankly, terror existing amongst politicians going, all right, cool, let's legalise. And the first person the first one who overdoses then the press just go to town and go there he is there's the guy who did it to you who made it legal and made it possible whilst successfully overlooking how many people are overdosing anyway or killing themselves with food and alcohol and whatever else but i do think that would be a problem I, and i think I think it's a problem that ought to be pretty easy for us to overcome, but it re it would require it would require the press to be grown ups, and they That's are not grown ups. They are just not grown ups. And actually, part of the I mean, I'm sort of I, I'm so angered by the press. That's why I describe it in those terms. But also, quite simply, uh, they're selling fewer newspapers, and their staff very often are not paid. And they're really, really struggling to get people to buy their newspapers. So sensationalism is not just... It doesn't just all sensationalism sells. Those bastards make a lot of money. It's like, it's absolutely key. They've got to make it really exciting. And the newspaper that tells you, we know who it was, will be the one that sells, you know. And uh, I, I, think, I think that is a big problem, but it just requires... It requires adult conversations, and it then I think people can get past it. It is an extremely valid point, because it will happen. It, undoubtedly, it will happen. If we reform drug laws tomorrow, there will be the first case that's going to be put against why this shouldn't have happened. But then, as you said, we need the grown-up conversation, because you're getting that every single day anyway. 
I mean, just in the O2, sniffer dog. There was a young girl. She saw the sniffer dog come in, so she swallowed her stash. That was a fatal overdose. So if you got rid of the stigmatisation, the criminalisation, then the chances are she wouldn't have felt bad enough to swallow those pills in the first place. Mm. So the, the, these accidents happen, and we historically, under prohibitions, deaths go up. You mentioned prohibition in America. Mm. It's little-known fact, but the, the American government were actually putting poison in the alcohol to deter people from taking it. So that the perverse nature of prohibition laws is you rely on the harms to put people off. And you don't get that under regulatory systems. That's where we, as a society, need to have an adult conversation mm. and just be like, okay, people are going to ingest whatever substances. How do we best manage that? And I think, yeah. to a degree, we're starting to get there. And I think that once around the world reforms start coming in we're probably going to be the last ones to get it but yeah 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 i i think so i i really don't think that we that i'm likely to see legalization or decriminalization within my lifetime i mean i suppose just just thinking about that actually it, it made me come back to what are my reservations around legalization and actually this it doesn't make much difference to whether drugs are legal or illegal other than what's in them and all the rest of it. But I think that a much more grown-up, much more nuanced, a much more fact-based discussion about what addiction is would be a very good starting point where this is concerned. I said earlier on, you know, chemical addiction is what people understand. They go, if you take heroin... The first time you take it, you will be addicted to it for the rest of your life. Heroin has magical qualities like that. No, it does not. And that is not what addiction is. So alongside decriminalization, legalization, reform and all the rest of it, we would need to do a huge amount more in terms of educating children, not about drugs, but about themselves, about how we are as people, how we relate to each other, the effect the, the connecting and isolating effect that mobile devices have on a new generation that we have no language for yet, no understanding of, and how we operate within our own heads. You know, I, I think a great many more people are struggling with that than, than we know about. I don't know anybody well. Uh, that's it. I don't know anybody well. No, I don't know anybody well who hasn't had a mental health issue of one form or another. Now, that might be very mild. It may simply be uh, that grief, which is not a mental health issue, it's an experience, but grief was dealt with in a way that became problematic because it was too painful to experience up close and it became problematic and all the rest of it. So along with reforming drug laws, I think we would need to do a huge amount in schools and colleges to help people with, with themselves, you know, that, that is We're a, really complicated, curious things, human beings. That is a really good point of having the broader conversation and not it being boiled down to drugs all the time and mental health being that example. We're, we're actually having a conversation about it now. You know, it's, yeah. Even the, the Royal Family are championing mental health issues and that would have been unheard of even 10 years ago. Again, if only, if only some of them had some direct experience with drugs... If only there was some way of bringing that about. See, I'm bowing out of this one now. <laughs> You're enough of an established celebrity, you can get away with that. Me? God, no. Tower. If I suddenly disappear, you'll know why. <laughs> huh. Have we got any more questions? Oh, we got two. Well done. We got John. 
if we can have a round of applause with John here, because he, he manages the distraction pieces, network, social media, we would not be here without him. Um, you, speak, you speak a lot against press and how that the kind of uh, narrative that they drive against um, lots of things, uh, gen general change, I guess. Mm. Um, and then you also kind of touched upon the, the fact that as a medium, it's dying. And for example, the famously reported thing during the election where, uh, where, the, where they were hosting a party and Murdoch stormed out because the results hadn't gone in his direction, at least that was alleged. Um, do you see that maybe there's a tipping point eventually where... Yeah, I do, I do. But that, that brings us into extremely dangerous waters because if you imagine, and this will be very difficult, but imagine the press as a really poisonous scorpion. <laughs> uh, if it's threatened, it'll sting quite indiscriminately. I mean, the sea change that I would love to see is for broadcast media just to pay them less attention, just set their own agenda. I mean, broadcast media have got their own problems with budgets and all the rest of it. Journalism at the BBC is well-funded, but it's a, bit, it's a bit scattergun. It's a bit spread everywhere. But I would love it if editors at the BBC for a kickoff just went, yeah, I mean, for the most part, anything that comes from a newspaper... Let's at the very least wait 24 hours before we give it any credence at all and let them begin to die. And by the way, the alternative to those newspapers, the democratisation of broadcast is not a good thing. Not yet. It could be, but it's not yet. Ours is the first generation. I say ours, I don't know if I'm in it. But ours is the first generation that have not had to seek permission to broadcast. This is brand new. What we're doing here is brand new. No one was able to do this, I think, 15 years ago. Let's say around 15 years ago. This is absolutely brand new. You could go home tonight and set yourself up a YouTube channel or a, 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 I don't know what the young people are using, my, a, a MySpace. <laughs> um, <laughs> you could set yourself up any number of platforms and start broadcasting. Now, if your broadcasting is exciting enough, people are going to pay attention to it. And a whole bunch of the stuff that exists online that appears to be news, it looks like the news, it looks like reporting, it looks like journalism, it's certainly pithy and has some, has some something about it, some level of excitement, off it goes. You can retweet it or you can put it on your thing and go, I read this, this is pretty interesting. Turns out 9-11 was uh, whatever you want to say 9-11 was, an inside job. You know, so the democratization of that process is not ready yet either. That's much more babyish. It may not be as toxic, but it's much more babyish than the press is at the moment. You know, I, I, I hope that changes. I hope that people seek out quality, but you know, they, for the most part, they don't. The big mistake, in my opinion, is that uh, nobody charged for the internet. That's a massive error. My children believe that art and news is free. Doesn't cost anything. And that's a huge mistake. My children have no stake in the art that they consume and they have no stake in the news that they consume, which is much more dangerous. If you have no stake in it, they have no responsibility where you're concerned. 
You know, we don't get to use Facebook for free. We're their employees. <laughs> we work for Facebook. If you run a Facebook page, you work for Facebook. You are their employee and you give your time for free. It's, you know, this, sh this stuff, it's, it's not ready. I don't, I'm not, I've no clue how to do this better. No clue. I'm just saying it's not ready. And it's not ready for drug legalization online either. Not ready. No way. There's so many points to this that are fascinating. <laughs> That's what I do. There's, I mean, where do I start? For one thing, I, I, I really want to get a, a panel on that discussion alone of is new media in, in really rubbish quotation marks, is it taken over from you know, the, the traditional stamped media? Um, is legalisation reliant on platforms like what we're doing now, you know, broadcasting on our own merits and our own steam. Yeah, all, all kinds of fascinating things in that. I think we had a question over here. Yes? You look like you've got one queued up. Hi. Um, I just oh. wondered, um, having dealt with three or more um, different types of addiction, um, one illegal, one legal, and others that you just deemed not right for you or not helpful, um, were they dealt with with different levels of respect by the people around you? For example, I don't know how, how many people around you knew about those addictions, but for example, if you went to a party and there was a buffet and drink, if people knew that you were, you were struggling with alcohol, did they avoid offering you alcohol but perhaps left the buffet all out for you um, to... Yeah, that's a really, a really good, interesting question. Thanks. I, um, yeah, I, I mean, in terms of stories, for some reason, drugs and alcohol are good stories and people want to hear them. And people tell them all the time. I have to say, I find them unbelievably tedious. But it's really furtive. Even if you forget the illegal thing, right? It's really furtive, you know, uh, just with alcohol. Had a few, uh, a few pints last night. Yeah, did we? Yeah. I tied one on. I tore an eyelid. Whatever the blah, 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 blah. It's so furtive. It's so fascinating. Endlessly fascinating. Right. Who's having a drink? Is it? What time is it? Is it too early? There's a whole language that exists around altering your experience. Drugs as well. Ah, oh, this one time, right, we were at Glastonbury. We went up the top. Do you know, you know the healing fields? We were going to wait till we got up the top. Anyway, we didn't. We dropped them by the Greenpeace tent. And by the time we'd passed, do you know the organic pizza place? Oh, my God. Dan, you know, <laughs> you know Lab Rat Dan? Well, he was lying down. It was hilarious. He thought he'd seen a bicycle with a pig on it. Turns out there actually was. It was part of a parade they were doing, blah, 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 and blah. It's like they're really tedious. Food stories. It's not that like, This one time, right, this one time, I ate from a bin in tears. Oh, guys, whoa. Whoa, not a cool story. Ah, yeah, I flicked, I flicked people's cigarette butts off a pizza that had been put in a bin. Ah, uh, not cool. So that's kind of weird. It's, that's just a weird thing. I mean, people would talk about deliciousness or saying, oh, my God, I ate so much and blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, my friend Vinny has a brilliant, a brilliant description of Boxing Day. He says, unless your poo is 70% poultry and 30% brandy butter, you've missed it. 
<laughs> but with porn addiction, which is rife, no one's talking about that. There's no good stories about sitting up until the birds tweet in the morning watching porn. But I tell you this, you have a look at how much of the internet is pornography. Somebody's watching and it's not me. I don't watch any. Right? So there's a, there's a huge market out there. And I absolutely guarantee you it's not 10 minutes at a time. It definitely isn't. There's too much porn for it to be around 10 minutes mostly for blokes once in a while. It's huge. It's massive. There's no stories about that. So, yeah, everything's stigmatized to different levels. When I was using, when I was still drinking and taking drugs, there were a very few people around me who tried to stop me, and they didn't stay around me for long because I succeeded, as all addicts do, in putting plenty of distance between those who expressed concern for me and those who didn't, choosing those who didn't to keep company with. That's what addicts do. And that's a big part of the reason why... Uh, drugs being illegal is so dangerous because if you are inclined towards addiction you will not surround yourself with helpful people at the very least if you can get your drugs legally you're going to bump into some helpful people you know so yeah we find out that we know is that different types of drugs elicit different types of response and sympathy as well and then others like we always associate in society heroin addicts as being the lowest of the low. You you mentioned you know on a council estate sitting on the stairwell. That's our image of it. Mm-hmm. Of course, I expect you know as much as what we do. There are so many high functioning heroin addicts. They're yeah, it keeps your skin looking remarkably good if you get good stuff too. I'm serious. Have you ever seen an old junkie with plenty of money? Oh my lord, they're radiant. See, we don't address that. It's another thing that we don't look at, isn't it? I don't think people should include intravenous heroin use <laughs> as part of their skincare routine. I don't. I would use. I would go with oil of Ule. I would, and not intravenously. Uh, but yes, no, but of course there are. You know, there are drugs. There are drugs that are deemed absolutely acceptable. I mean, I'd, look. If you want my view on it, just for a bit of fun, I, I've said for a long time with cocaine. Right, It should be legal. In fact, it should be encouraged. Everybody should be allowed to take cocaine apart from people who want to. <laughs> Anybody who wants to should be prevented from taking cocaine because they are the kind of people who definitely don't need cocaine. <laughs> also, legal or not, bringing cocaine from where it's grown and how it's grown into this country hurts so many people. It hurts so many people. It enslaves loads of people. I know people who live very ethical lives, very ethical lives, who consider carefully the choices that they make about the food they buy and all the rest of it. I'm talking about vegan Coke users here, you know? Bullshit. That's a nasty drug with a nasty process that brings it into this country, and it does. it's not fun to be around, by the way. If you're me and you're around people who've taken Coke... That's I leave I leave so quickly when people have taken coke, they're horrible. There's there's a great little documentary online called Shoveling Water, and it's by a friend of ours, Sanyo Tree. Um, it, and if you listen to this podcast, go to a cast.com slash stop and search, and it'll be scrolling along the bottom. Um, have we got any more questions, or should we start to wrap up? I think we're probably yeah we're good. So yo uh, not Johan. Johan, all of a sudden. So yes, I far What did you take? <laughs> so this is just water, I assure you. 
like you, I stopped drinking at the age of 17 because I realised it was not for me. It was not a good process. And I'm completely conscious of what you were saying, that once you get outside of that, you see a whole new realm of language. And it's weird, how, isn't it? And this voyeuristic experience yeah. of seeing people in society that get drunk and it's like, really? This is bizarre. It's bizarre. And, and also, you know, I take enormous pleasure, right? So my father really loves wine. He really, really loves wine and he knows... Like, he knows wine. It's probably there's some nonsense at play there, but I don't mind. I really love seeing him share his wine with his friends and hearing them talk about it and stuff. It's interesting to me. And the same, you know, I'm not, it's not, I'm not sniffy about it really, about like uh, a really cold beer on a hot day or something like that. You know, like being around my brother, like my brother likes to drink. He drinks beer and he drinks wine and whatever else. And, you know, I, I like, I actually like being around that. I don't like arriving at parties where people are already drunk, mm. but I don't mind going and being there while people get drunk, oddly. Um, but it is the stories after a while you're like, you know that's the same story you tell all the time, right? You just changed from one one brand to another like it's boring it's really boring and it is it's difficult the isolation of being in that social environment can be without yeah. having that crutch of a drink it can be excluding and i think that yes. could be something that within food as well i imagine if yeah no kidding man. we're so geared up to being focused on food like you said every cooking program on the telly mm. every single celebration seems to be around food. well and yeah and also you know like we're not mistaken where that's concerned like apart from physical affection Food is one of the very first things that is associated with love, mm. right? So either bottle or breastfeeding is a very intimate experience, right? A very intimate experience. And then the weaning process involves being told that you're good and mummy and daddy are pleased. Eat up. There's a good boy. Well done. Mummy made this specially for you. All of that. It is so closely associated with expressions of love. It's hardly surprising that as a drug of choice, both in terms of what it does uh, chemically to you, but also as an association with affection and love. It's what we do. We prepare food for each other. And that, that's a very good thing. But if, like me, you have problems with, uh, with addiction, it's hardly surprising that it you know, that, that that exacerbates it. And just to come back to your experience about being at parties and, you know, a lot of people being drunk and stuff, when I'm not in a good place with food, if we were sitting here eating, okay, I'd eat pretty quickly because I eat pretty quickly. If you left something on your plate, it would be difficult for me to hear you. I kid you not. Like, it would be hard for me to hear the words coming out of your mouth because that on your plate would be a lot louder than you are. And it would just be singing to me and communicating with me the entire time. I like if I sit and I, like because I have kids, right? And they forever leaving food, and I sit there and I'm like, "Please eat your food, please, God, please finish your food." Or like people who leave a chip <laughs> because they think somehow that's a that's a victory over their meal because they didn't finish it all. I've chalked one up. I didn't finish it. I left. I left three chips, and I'm like, "Please, God, eat those chips, or someone take them away, because I am struggling to hear any words you're saying right now." That's what. That's what. That's what food addictions like, man. Well, I think on that note, 
we got a fake oh God, mark. Oh, God, that's a dark place to come <laughs> out. Uh, I was thinking, how do we Sweet out? Sweet mercy. There's no out on this, is there? Unless we come up with some sort of sing- song and dance between, or get naked like Rufus. Yeah, sure. Man, I, d- I did think for a second, if we could, because you, you don't believe drug legalisation will happen in your, your lifetime. So do I you, think, by the way? I never I asked think, you. I think we're getting there. I think that do you? once okay. we win the, the PR battle, which is where my specific domain comes yeah. in, I think that we will get there. I think that we will pass the mainstream press. Well, I've been very wrong before so i hope my opinion didn't put a downer on your hopes my friend i thought jeremy corbyn was going to do terribly badly in the last election and, and that's a good point is that it, politics at the moment is so in flux that you don't know what's going to be happening around the corner exactly so they, there I, may well have been an election while we were doing this yeah ronnie <laughs> ronnie you still in a seat yeah i've got some, i've got some bad news <laughs> <laughs> I, I did think that if um, we do get drug legalisation in the next, I don't know, five years, you'd come back naked or some, yeah, some other way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also, I have promised friends of mine that when, not if, when I relapse, I'm going to do it on TV. I'm pitching a show to Channel 4 called Pro Celebrity Relapse. And um, <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. What you do is you get a bunch of recovering celebs doesn't have to all be celebs but you know you put them in a house and then you ramp up the pressure and the audience you don't vote on who goes out you get to vote on what chemicals <laughs> are made available within the house right so amazing it's wouldn't quite that pavlovian as well it would be it? absolutely fantastic you just you just make it more and more emotionally challenging and see who breaks first well, I'm fantastic. This, would marcus come to the cocaine room <laughs> Well, that's definitely an out we can have. Give it a rub for Marcus Briggs and Thank you. Thanks very much. And if you like that episode, make sure you do check out the Rufus Hound episode as well, which will be scrolling along on your cast app right now, or you just find it in our back catalogue, you know where to get it. Um, And thankfully, Rufus was clothed when he joined us, and I promise I'll stop going on about Rufus naked now. That's it. Um, and of course, check out our friends on the Distraction Pieces Network, Susie Cage's Save Why to Drugs. Uh, absolutely brilliant, phenomenal success that, that is. Unbiased drug information. Um, also, our call listing with Christian Stew. That's just been a, a phenomenon. They, they've really taken off. And of course, they're going live soon as well. So check them out. Tuesday night, George, Jim Smallman. He's done so much with that podcast. Uh, the numbers and the guests that he gets on there. Uh, if you're into wrestling, even if you're not, just listen to Jim. And, of course, Distraction Pieces with the original Scroobius Pip, um, our boss. If you listen to us, then you're going to listen to him anyway, aren't you? Because um, he's just a podcasting lord now, I'd say. I think that's actually an official title of his. If you fancy giving us some um, love on social media and iTunes, give us some nice reviews, five stars, share, like, subscribe, all that kind of things. Honestly, honestly, honestly does help. And, of course, a few thank yous. Uh, my name is Ad for the podcast artwork. Thank you, Nikki the producer. Thank you so much, Nikki, for all you do. I started giving Nikki some baked goods at, um, at our live events to keep him happy in the corner as he twiddles his knobs. So thanks a lot, Nikki. And John, John Harris, who you would have heard in that particular episode with Marcus, um, he does all the distraction pieces, network social media, gives us those really cool um, quote little videos that... that that really, I don't know, really do help us spread the reach, actually, within um, within drug law reform as well as just this podcast, this humble podcast. 
Uh, and of course, Jake as well, that helps out on social media as well. And as you can tell, I am rambling, so it's a good place to stop it, isn't it? So please do join us again. We've got loads more guests coming up. If you fancy joining us on the live occasions, just check out our social media, find some tickets, and uh, I'll be really pleased to see you. So thanks a lot again, guys. Bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where two lives seldom stray Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.